Father, uh, one desire, and that is to honor you, Lord. Uh, I ask God for every word that does not come from your mouth, Lord, to just vanish in the air, but I ask God for your word to sustain. I ask God for you to write on tablets of human flesh. I ask God for you to inscribe deeply and tattoo your word and your will on the hearts of your people. Father, for you to not just send your word, God, as a uh, a sword without a without a, a warrior, but God, for you to send your word with your Holy Spirit, for the two to marry, God, in our lives, that, Father, in our generation, it might be said, God, that we served your purpose, that, Father, we brought you glory, that we, in some way, Lord, were considered uh, faithful servants, because we love you, we're committed to you, God, there's nothing else, Lord, that we care about, and um, certainly not anything nearly so much as we care about honoring you out of the gratefulness that we have in our heart, Lord, for uh, just the way you loved us for no good reason. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, my name is uh, Steve Noblet, and Strategies in Domestic Medical Missions is the title of, our, of, this, uh, of this session. Uh, I'm the director of an organization called Christian Community Health Fellowship, or CCHF. And CCHF is a uh, nationwide community of Christians that are committed to living out the gospel through health care among the poor. Um, so we are, uh, in a way, like a domestic medical missions organization, except I'm going to just confess right on the very front end that I was assigned this topic, um, which I'm happy for because it's broad enough that I can pretty much say anything I want. Okay? Um, but... The truth is I don't believe in domestic missions because I don't think God thinks about what's happening in America as domestic, as though he lives here in a way he doesn't live somewhere else, right? So what's the name of the conference that, where you are? It's the, what's the G? Global. God has one global mission. And so if there's anything that you come away with today, what I hope you'll understand is that if you live in the United States, you live in a mission field, okay? And uh, that it's a foolish and sort of kind of a ludicrous thought that you will one day be fruitful doing something somewhere else that you're not fruitful doing here. Like the best preparation for you to be useful in the kingdom of God elsewhere is for you to be useful in the kingdom of God this afternoon and tomorrow morning when you wake up. And every day that you wake up and you... Inhale and you say, oh, I have an opportunity to serve Jesus today. And everything that he's given me, I lay at his feet in service to him. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in the United States. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, just the U.S. as a mission field and uh, some things that I think are really important um, for you to understand. There's now... There, there's some things that I was hoping to have gone, been able to go through and edit out of this uh, deal, and I just hadn't had time to do it today. It's been a, it's been a busy morning, so uh, when, there's going to get to a point. It'll be a little disjointed maybe, but just, like, bear with me. Hang in there, and um, it's, it's, always a, it's never a challenge to, about what to say. It's always a challenge what not to say in these kinds of things. So with that said, I've said too much already. Let's move on. So... Um, America is part of God's global mission, and this is a map of medically underserved areas in the United States. Now, uh, some of you guys are public health students, and you all instantly know what an MUA or an MUP is, and others of you may not understand what that means. But a medically underserved area is not an arbitrary thing. It's a, it's a federal designation of a geographic area that is characterized by four things. Uh, there's too many poor people, too many old people. Sorry, this is, a, this is a problem this year. For some reason, every time, every few minutes, Southeast wants me to log on to their site or something. So anyway, too many poor people, too many old people. The infant mortality rate is through the roof, and there's not nearly enough providers or health care providers in that area. If there's color on this map, it is severely medically underserved. And... Um, this is another map very similar. This is a HIPSA or Health Profession Shortage Area map. 
You can look these up. Uh, you can Google these, and it will tell you all about them. But basically, the same kind of thing. They measure it a little bit differently. This is, uh, this is dealing with primary care physicians and, and primary care providers. And, if, again, if there's color on this map, it means that, that people that live there are having a very difficult time finding a doctor that will see them. Okay, so how bad is the shortage? A primary care physician can really take care, provide sort of a medical home of somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 patients and do a really good job of that, okay? If there's color on this map, it means there's less than one physician for 2,500 adults, okay? So that's a, that's a real problem. So um, what does that translate to in, in, in terms of numbers? Uh, these are these are real numbers. They're not. Uh, this is the United States of America. 96 million people. I don't know how many countries have 96 million people in them, but 96 million people in America live in medically underserved areas. Uh, 65 million of those live in what's called high priority HIPSA areas. In other words, the need is so great that the government's saying we don't have enough money to to throw at this problem, so we're going to focus on these areas first. And uh, in those areas, uh, people are, patients are competing with patients for doctors, okay? So I always tell medical students, when you get out of med school, when you get out of residency and you start looking for a job and you start putting applications places, ask them one question. What's your advertising budget? And if they have one, don't go to work there. You do not need the, we have a lot of doctors. In many places, we have enough doctors, but they're siloed in communities where they want to live, communities that are comfortable, privileged communities where it's, you know, nice for them to save. And they, they like living close to where they work too, right? So, uh, so for example, I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and in Memphis, Tennessee, we have a suburb that I, where I used to live called Germantown. Germantown's a really nice suburb. If you live in Philadelphia, Germantown's a really terrible place. But in, but in, but in Memphis, Tennessee, Germantown is a really Great suburb, and uh, the average household income in Germantown, Tennessee, is $125,000 per household, and there's about 30,000 people that live there. And six miles away from there is a community called Frazier, and in Frazier, they also have about 30,000 people that live there, and the average household income in Frazier is under $25,000 per household, okay? Can you guess where the doctors are in Memphis? So until a few years ago, there were 105 doctors in Germantown, and there were two in Fraser, and neither one took Medicaid. Okay, so we have two docs in Fraser that are that, and, and we've got 30,000 people that are competing for the 2,000 slots that are going to get to see that doc, those doctors. And guess who gets those? It's the ones with insurance. It's the handful of people that live on the very top edge of privilege in those communities. So 51 million people in the United States are chronically in, uh, uninsured and another 25 million are severely underinsured. And believe it or not, Obamacare is not going to solve that problem because Obamacare doesn't deal with redistribution of the medical workforce. It doesn't even really deal heavily enough with the uh, increase in the medical workforce because there's already a shortage. So... Um, so this is, this is the United States. This is not a third world country, okay? So spiritually, in the United States, these are from the, the George Barna Institute. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but basically it's this organization that uh, does all this research and collects all these statistics about spirituality and Christianity in America. Less than 20% of Americans attend church right now. And the Christian church in America is predicted to shrink by 50% in the, next four, in the next 30 to 40 years. So, sorry. There's got to be a way to fix that. On top of that, according to George Barna, half of the people who attend church are unsure of their salvation, or deny the atonement and the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, half of the people that are attending church in the United States are not, are not even Christian, okay? Um, 
and less than 1% of Americans under the age of 50 have a biblical worldview. This is, a, this is a big deal, okay? The number of Americans who identify themselves as having no religion at the same time that the church is, is shrinking, uh, the people who identify themselves proudly as having no religion is more than doubled in, just in the last 20 years. Uh, so I was talking to um, the former president of one of the largest Christian denominations in the country, uh, actually earlier this week, and, uh, and he sat down with me and he said, Steve, he said, I am telling everyone in our denomination, we are unsustainable. The church is losing this nation. Now, <clears throat> um, this, is a, this is a statement from the uh, Francis A. Schaeffer Institute for Church Leadership Development, that the United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. In other words, the U.S. is becoming an ever-increasing unreached people group. All right, I'm not just sharing these things to shock you, okay? I'm trying to get you to understand that we are becoming like the rest of the world. That revival is happening in other places, but it's not happening here yet. Okay, we've had it. We've, we've left the harvest in the fields. Um, we need a missional strategy for our nation, and the church is running out of ideas. The church doesn't know how to reconnect with the communities of need. The church is still, you know, I know where I'm standing, and, I, you know, and I'm grateful for churches like Southeast that are located here and have a huge presence, but the church is still trying to build on a model where they move out to some place where it's easy for people to get into them and build these huge edifices, and they don't understand why this isn't working. It's not changing our nation. If Christian radio was the answer, we'd be the most Christian place on the planet. You know, Christian universities, Christian soccer teams, Christian bookstores, all of those kinds of things, we've just built a bubble. And the answer is what Jesus told us. And it's not to get people to come to church. It's to get the church to go to the people. It's to get people out. And the church doesn't know how to do that anymore. Uh, I used to teach evangelism explosion for many years in our church. And, um, and I can tell you, we used to sit down and we used to say, make a list of everybody that you're going to come in contact with in the next seven days. Now, take that list, and it's usually going to be a list of about 20 to 30 people. In that list, circle the names of the people that you know on that list that you think may not be a Christian. And here's the problem. We had loads of Christians that didn't know any non-Christians because they had so isolated themselves and become so insular and uh, lost our sense of outreach. What we know in foreign missions is that we can get into the hardest places on earth, the most closed places on earth, and do it effectively using medical missions. And I'm telling you that medical missions is the answer to our nation here in the United States as well. I love the fact that God has a mission. God has a mission. And uh, it's a global mission. America's a part of that global mission. He has every right to have a mission because it's his earth. God's not invading these closed countries. He's not invading these dark neighborhoods. They belong to him already. God's not taking over anything. It already belongs to him. Every morning you should wake up quoting Psalms 24.1 that says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, it's his. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And I love this one, the Psalms 22. Um, which I think is worth me taking a second just to read, if I could. Can I, you mind if I do that real quick? Psalms 22 is a great messianic psalm that uh, that begins. A lot of you guys will know it. It begins with, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that beautiful psalm that predicts uh, the, the isolation. Hang on a second here. That predicts the suffering and the isolation of Christ. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, you don't listen. Yet you're enthroned as the Holy One, the praise of all of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust and trusted you and delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by men, despised by people. And here, you know, again, you get this insight into into Christ as he hangs there on the cross, making atonement for all the nations. And he says, he says, those who see me mock me and hurl insults at me, shake their heads. He trusts the Lord, they mock. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. He goes on and he says, from birth I was cast upon you. In my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned in me to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my, uh, roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. I can, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me, and it's Incredible picture of, of what happened to Christ. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then he, then he goes on and he says, But I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. In other words, Jesus suddenly you get a, you get an understanding of this unquenchable joy that he's experiencing in the depths of despair on the cross as he sit, as he's standing there and receiving the full wrath of God for all of our sins, for the sins of the whole world. And he suddenly understands and he says, it's not for nothing. It means something. The Father counts this for something. Something good's going to come out of this. And he goes on and he says this, he says, he says, from you now, O Lord, the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before you, uh, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And I'm just telling you that when I read Barna's statistics and I look at what's happening in our country, I was born in the Jesus movement. I was born again in the Jesus movement. Three weeks ago, I celebrated my 40th birthday in Jesus. I can remember the minute that I received Christ. For some people, it's like boiling water. For me, it was like a light switch. I knew one minute Jesus was not in my life, and the next minute I knew I was forgiven and that he had come and transformed me. And in those 40 years, I have watched, I have watched with deep lament the spiraling of our nation. I've watched friends that have turned away from God. I've watched the media. I've watched uh, entertainment. All of these things go further and further and further away from God. But I am telling you that Christ's death gives us absolute hope. It gives us certainty. It's not a possibility that there will be revival in America. It's inevitable that there will be revival in America. God is going to redeem America as the same way that God's redeeming other nations in the earth. God's going to redeem the, the lostest, darkest place on the face of the planet because it is his and he values it. There's not a neighborhood that God avoids. There's not an area that God tries to drive around like we were raised to do in Memphis, Tennessee, you know. We don't despise your inheritance, but begin to take hope. Don't look to go someplace else because it's exciting and the possibilities are endless there and it's so hard here in America. Listen, God planted you here. He planted you here. Acts 17, Paul stands up in front of the Athenians and he says to the Athenians, he says, uh, he, he says, from one man God created all men and he determined the times and places where each one should live for this purpose, that men might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, for he's not far from any of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. God has you in, in the United States of America at this time in your life or wherever it is that you're, that you're living at this time in your life so that men might seek him and find him. We have to be those who are not afraid of the dark. We have to be those that are, con- that are committed to go into difficult places and stand and say, hey, this place belongs to God. His kingdom is here, and I'm an ambassador of that kingdom. All right, I can't preach that much anymore. All right, so God's. So this is what I'm going to sort of blast through here real quick. Um, if God has a mission... We need to be about God's mission. We certainly don't need to ask God to follow us. We need to follow him. And so instead of coming up with a great idea and submitting it to the Lord and asking his blessing, we need to spend time in his word with his Holy Spirit and say, teach us your ways so that we can walk in your paths. And I think that there's, if we understand that God's mission is rooted in God's kingdom, then there's two things that I think that we need to understand about mission in general. And this is whether you go to Pakistan or Zambia or Guatemala or Detroit, okay? And that is that there are principles of the kingdom of God that, are, that, that have to be fleshed out in whatever form of mission or whatever strategy of mission you decide to choose. And not only are there principles, but there's also methods, okay? So I'm not going to spend any time going through this, but the principles um, uh, of, of, let me go back here for just a second real quick. Principles of God's kingdom, righteousness and justice. They're the foundation of his throne. Repentance and reconciliation. There's no reconciliation without repentance, but reconciliation is the ministry that we've been given. We've got to figure out how to walk that out. And more than just reconciling to God. Like you cannot be reconciled to God and not be reconciled with one another. The Lord's table and dead Christians all over the world that have taken it in an unworthy manner are testimony to that. Okay, Reconciliation is an, is an important relational social issue for us. Okay, Small to great. Like don't despise small things. God, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And it grows until it's the greatest tree in the garden. I've seen mustard trees, and it must be a really small garden, I'll just tell you. But um, <laughs> servant leadership, you know, let me just tell you that, that if you're in medical school, you're in medical school because you probably are, you know, have fought your way through all the academic competition, competition that you've had, and you, you, you have scored high, and, and you've had to compete for your place and all that kind of thing. And, and the truth is that medical school does not do a great job of helping you to develop a servant's heart. Yeah? So you've got to look to Christ for that. But, we, but that's got to be a principle. This is driving me crazy. Here we go. So that's got to be a principle that in anything that we do. But in addition to kingdom principle, there's kingdom methods. Okay? And I do want to just run through these very quickly. Number one method is there is no mission that's not, that's a godly kingdom-rooted mission that's not based on relational discipleship. I mean, programs, radio programs, you know, dropping hot air balloons full of tracks on North Korea, all of those things, like there's probably some value in that. I'm not, I don't want anybody to stop doing that, but that's not a substitute for relational life-on-life discipleship. Programs are not going to substitute your ability, your, your requirement by God to get into people's lives, life on life. Memphis, Tennessee has the highest infant mortality rate in the United States. Okay? Um, every morning I drive my wife to work past the Planned Parenthood building, and there's a group of Christians standing out there every single day with signs that says, pray for the end of abortion. And I, and I do. I roll my window down, I honk at them, I give them the thumbs up, I, th- I say, thank you for being here, thank you for reminding me, we're praying for the end of abortion. Then I take my wife to work in a Christian clinic where babies that, where mothers that didn't want their babies to be aborted are bringing them for care. And in Memphis, we have three zip codes in Memphis where a baby is less likely to have its first birthday than a baby born in Botswana or El Salvador. Because the infant mortality rate is so high. And we know how to stop it. It requires life on life, 
relationship. All I need is a sweet suburban white lady from the Presbyterian Church out in East Memphis to invest her life for a few months with a 14-year-old pregnant black teenage girl and just take her to the doctor. That's all I need her to do. Take her to the doctor, take her shopping, tell her what side to have the baby sleep on. We can drop infant mortality in Memphis to, to where it's incredibly low. I can fill auditoriums with Christians that, are, that want to stand up and protest abortion. I cannot get Christians to invest themselves in a life-on-life discipleship relationally with somebody cross-culturally from them and know that they will save a life. So I'm just saying, like, we, I'm not saying don't do the one. I'm saying we've got to do the both, okay? Cross-cultural, cross-generational. Uh, Christians are great at making friends and practicing hospitality, which in their minds means invite my Sunday school class over for dinner. Hospitality in the Bible means inviting strangers to your house. It never means inviting friends to your house. It means creating friends. It means loaning money not to people that are good investment risk. It means loaning money to people who cannot pay you back. It means doing things for others that cannot do them back for you. Cross-cultural and cross-generational. Jesus' first statement about the church was, the gates of hell is not going to prevail against it. And I, I love the image of the church being on the offensive and busting down the gates of hell. And it probably means that too. But at the very least, it means that the grave is not going to triumph over the church. In other words, old people have to disciple young people. We've got to bring the next generation in. Okay, Incarnational presence. The gospel is not only meant to be proclaimed, it's meant to be witnessed. Jesus was the word made flesh. We understood everything about the Old Testament because Jesus embodied that in his life. We have to be present enough for the people that we want to reach and that we want to love into the kingdom of God to be able to see the gospel at work in our lives. Okay, we'll come back to that one in a little bit. That one's a, this is costly. Community and team ministry versus individualism. Again, medical school does not prepare doctors to work in team very well. You are the be-all and end-all. You're the, you're the top of the peak. You are, you've, and you are. You're the, you're, you're the most important piece in the puzzle, okay? I'll just tell you, you are. But there's got to be team. Jesus sent people out two by two, and we need to have team ministry. By this, we'll all know that you're my disciples in the way that you love one another. Doing and teaching. We've substituted this. We've left the doing out. There's no, there's no wonderment. In the, in the New Testament, they demonstrated the power of the gospel by healing the sick, by doing something that was so counterintuitive to the world around them that the, that the people around them wondered what in the world is going on. And as they began to wonder and ask, then the teaching came. And here we are again. Sorry. All right. All right. Here's another kingdom method. You don't ease into a, into a mission field. You go straight up to the toughest place, and you go there first. Twenty-something years ago, my wife and I decided that God was leading us to, into a community that we're still very involved with and that we really believe that God's called us to love in a very covenantal way. And um, we talked with a bunch of people that understood inner-city ministry better than us, and they said, well, whatever you do, stay out of the high school. Those guys are too far gone. Start working with elementary school kids or... You know, do some things in the homes or whatever, you know, but stay away from the high schools. They're all in gangs, and it's a mess. And so you know what we did? We read the Bible. We found that Jesus, we found that in the Old Testament, God sent the Israelites to Jericho at flood stage, waited till they got across the rivers, camping in the shadow of the largest military garrison in, in Canaan, closed the river back up, and then told Joshua to circumcise all of his troops. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the bottom line is he, wants it, he takes us into the tough places first. Jesus said it himself. You want to understand my ministry? You go bind the strong man, then you go plunder his goods. So, like, stop 
easing your way in. Like, God is with you. God is with you. Do something in faith. Step in the tough places. Self-denial and sacrifice. If any man comes after me, he must deny himself. There's a lot that we could talk about there. Faith without overthinking it. You know, Jesus calls the 72 together and he says, okay, I'm sending you out. Like sheep among wolves, whatever you do, don't take anything with you. Look for people of peace. Share the gospel. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next place. And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? He says, well, proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. I don't see Jesus giving them a four-year seminary program on how to raise the dead. He just said, go do it. You know, So don't overthink it. Just go do it. Faith is important. Dependence on God is never, you're never going to get out of the place if you're really following in God's mission where you're not going to be utterly dependent on God. We need to operate in the power of the Spirit. I love the fact that Jesus, that's what set Jesus apart from everybody else. When he spoke with authority, it's because he spoke by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was as comfortable in the realm of the Spirit as he was in the realm of the flesh. And so he'd walk into a synagogue, and he'd be teaching a group of Pharisees, and be talking to you know, some folks here that aren't very bright, and then all of a sudden, you know, he would be speaking to a demon right there. Like nobody else knew it was there. Jesus knew it was there, and he's talking. We've got to become comfortable in walking in the power of the Spirit. And again, med school doesn't teach you how to do that very well. But uh, it's something we've got to do. And then agape, which I believe the best definition I know for agape is loving someone for no reason at all. Having no reason to love them other than I love you. That's, I, that's the only thing, that's the only way I can explain God's heart for me. I gave him no reason to love me and he agaped me. So I believe the harvest is ripe. That's, this is another thing. When I see... Barna's report about how bad things are getting in America and how we're on a downward slide and the church seems to be disengaged in any effective way with the needs in our, in our nation. Uh, and and it, it looks kind of hopeless. I mean, if you read the New Testament, if you read the, the Gospel of Matthew, I love after, right after the, the Sermon on the Mount, there's these two chapters where it's just rapid fire action. Jesus is dealing with Pharisees, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing sick people. And there are all these little short two-verse stories, and there's two whole chapters of that, just rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire. And then it says at the end of that that second chapter, which would be chapter 9, I think, at the very end it says, Jesus looked out over the multitudes, and he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he didn't go into deep depression, and he didn't try to reevaluate what was wrong with the synagogue system, and he didn't try to go back and talk to the church leaders or to the, or to the, to the Jewish leaders at the temple. He said to the disciples, with, I think, great excitement in his voice, pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's ripe. The harvest is ripe. Wickedness is a sign of a ripe harvest. In the book of Joel, it says... It says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of judgment is at hand in the valley of decision because their wickedness is so great. The valley of decision is a place where people turn to the Lord. It's where repentance happens. And so um, I, I want to encourage you to take heart, where, whether you're, regardless of what country you're in, but especially in America. Okay, so where's the harvest ripe and who's it ripe with? How much time have we got? Ten minutes? Okay, great. All right. All right, Gallup Poll um, is a Gallup organization does polls, and they, they do surveys every year about who people in, in America trust. Who do you think the most trusted professionals that people come in contact with are in America? Yeah. So, all right, nurses, number one, every year, number one. All right, pharmacists and medical doctors swap. Year in and year out depends on whether they got the prescription right that year or not. <laughs> this year the engineer jumped up. Sometimes it's a school teacher, uh, usually an elementary school teacher. They don't trust high school teachers. And then this is crazy to me, but dentists makes the top five. I, I, I think they're the most untrustworthy. But here's the bottom line is people trust. People have a bridge of trust that you did not have to earn other than the fact that you've got a piece of paper on the wall. I guess that is you did have to earn that, right? 
But, I mean, they, they buy into that. They trust you. They trust you. In 2006, Johns Hopkins did a, uh, the School of Public Health, Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, published a study on religious and spiritual beliefs and health. And it was really fascinating. What they found was that 90% of the people that they surveyed said that they believe in a personal God. Now, keep in mind that only 20% of Americans go to church, okay? But 90% say they believe in a personal God. 58% consider themselves to be religious. But when they asked, 94% said that they believed that spiritual health and physical health were equally important and that they were interrelated. And they went on to ask, 80% pray when they're sick or in pain. In fact, that's their first, before they take an aspirin, it's more common for them to pray. And 72% said that they felt that their health care provider should talk to them about spiritual health issues. So at a clinic in Memphis, it's a Christian clinic, they've started, they took this study and they said, okay, we're going to come up with something. So they go in and they do a little screen with every patient. And they go in and they say, on a scale of 1 to 10, is, is it, hi, my name is Steve Nylon. I'm a spiritual health consultant here at Christ Community. And um, uh, we believe that your spiritual health and your physical health are interrelated. You understand that too. And they all go, yeah, we do. And they say, uh, so let me ask you this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rank your own spiritual health? Does it really matter what the answer is? Because you know what the next question is going to be. Why did you give yourself that score? And suddenly you open a conversation about spiritual issues. And you know how many people say, hey, I'm uncomfortable talking about this? How many people? I know there's some Christ community people here. How many, how many people have ever said, I'm uncomfortable talking about this with you? I think one out of, one or two out of thousands of people that they've talked to. Okay? So people want health care providers to talk to them about spiritual issues. And this is the, the bottom one is really hilarious to me. 50% said, I wish my doctor would pray with me. And then they ask another question. If you knew your doctor was a spiritual person, would it make a difference? And the number was over 85%. So in other words, I don't even know if my doctor has a faith. I still want him to pray with me. Half the people want him to pray. Is that crazy? If you wear a cross on your pen, if you say something nice in Jesus' name, you pray for him, offer to pray for him. So, all right. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, so there's a cardiology resident named Art Jones uh, back in the early uh, 80s. And he, had, he was unfortunate enough to be married to a lady whose best friend got roped into planting a church in Lawndale Community, which is a really rough neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. Uh, what happened there was a, a football coach at the local high school that was an FCA guy had led some kids to the Lord, and he was taking his, the kids through a home Bible study on 10 basic steps to Christian maturity, and one of the lessons was you need to be part of a local church in order to grow in Christ. And the next week the kids came back and said, we want to start a church. He said, well, that wasn't the point. <laughs> and they said, look, we know the church is here. They don't want us. We want to start a church, and you're going to be the pastor. So it's like, okay. So then he goes to his wife and he says, it can't just be you and me and a bunch of high school kids. What are we going to do? And so they started recruiting any friends that they knew to please help join them so they wouldn't be the only adults in this high school ministry. And, uh, and so Art Jones's wife was Wayne Gordon's wife's best friend, and he got roped into coming on the Sundays that he wasn't doing, uh, that he wasn't, you know, doing his residency rotations or whatever. And so um, a few weeks into the church, it's just these two families and this group of teenage kids. And the pastor, Pastor Wayne, who's never been a pastor in his life and had no pastoral training, is doing chalk talks because that's what football coaches do, right? He's doing a chalk talk and he's like, yeah, Jesus said we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves, you know. So what do you think that means, love our neighbors ourselves? And the kids are starting to talk about how they want to love their neighbors. And one of, the th- one of the kids says, you know, we need to know what our neighbors' needs are. And our neighbors need a doctor. There's, no, there's not a health center here. My mama and my, and my sister and my cousin and my aunt and my grandma can't go to the doctor because there's no doctor here. And so they write this up on the board, and they write a bunch of other things. You know, there's no jobs. There's, the police are corrupt. There's all these, uh, you know, all these different problems that they had in their community. 
And Wayne sits over on his stool and looks up and goes, what, that, what on that board can we do? And it was a rhetorical question. The answer was nothing. We're a small group Bible study that's calling itself a church with two adult families and a bunch of high school kids. And one of the kids says, well, isn't Art a doctor? Okay. So it didn't happen overnight, but like a year later, uh, a group donated them a burned-out old Cadillac dealership across the street that they had tried to give away to Goodwill and several other nonprofits who all said, it's too bad for us, we don't want it. You, we don't even want it as a donation. So the kids said, hey, we could do something with that. Let's build a basketball gym place and a health center. And so this is what a cardiology resident at the University of Chicago in 1983 looks like on, on all of his spare time, okay? Like, I don't know if you can tell which one he is, but it's the one that doesn't look like he's having a great time, okay? <laughs> They're working at the place, and a lady whose last name is Guggenheim, so you know she's got to be rich, right? She works for a big philanthropic foundation, drives by, sees them working on this place. She gets out, starts looking around, and she sees all these kids and all these community people, neighbors, like the, guy, the other guy with the wheelbarrow, working there. Nobody had hard hats. Nobody had safety glasses. Nobody had steel-toed boots. They're climbing ladders. They're not roped off. And she's appalled. She starts asking questions, and they thought, well, she's going to report us to the building code people, and it's all over, you know. So the next week they get, a, they get a letter that says, our foundation is going to give you $150,000 to do your project. On the condition, you get hard hats and safety glasses for the people that work there. The foundation was so impressed that the community wanted this so badly that the community was doing, it was making sure that it happened. And so in 1984, Lawndale Christian Health Center, I love this as their big billboard in front of the liquors and grocery store. <laughs> And it started with, with two doctors. The guys that are bookends are the two doctors, the curly-headed guys, Coach uh, Wayne Gordon, who is the pastor of the church there. And they started with uh, uh, two doctors, a nurse, and two support staff. Uh, Lawndale Christian Health Center is the largest Christian health center in the United States. You'll see about 200,000 patient visits this year. Uh, a few years later, uh, the guy on the far left here is Rick Donlan, who's uh, – certain celebrity here at this conference, and, uh, and in, the, uh, in 1993, when he was a resident, he went to a CCHF conference and he meets Art Jones and sits down with Art Jones and says, hey, listen, me and three other Christian guys that I met at LSU Med School, we made a blood pact that we were going to serve Jesus with our medical careers. How can we do it? And Art starts talking to him about what they've done in Lawndale. And so in 1995, when Rick finishes his MedPeds residency program, uh, which he decided, which he did in Memphis because it was the most medically underserved major city in the United States at the time, he calls up his three friends that had made this agreement, and, uh, and he says, okay, let's move to Memphis and let's start a clinic. And so they started a clinic in South Memphis, uh, which was the most medically underserved neighborhood in the most medically underserved major city in the United States. They had, had over 40,000 people in there and no doctors. And so they, they started that clinic in 1995. Um, here we go. This is not that clinic. Uh, it, was much, it was not nearly as nice as this one. They now have seven clinics. Um, they have seven clinics, four, three or four dental clinics, four pharmacies, a residency program, a surgery program. Uh, they just opened a women's clinic. They employ now over uh, right around 300 people. So a few years into Christ Communities development, there, was, there were two other MedPeds residents that were doing their residency in Memphis. And the one on the right here is Dr. Robert Campbell. And Robert Campbell did his continuity clinic at, Christ, at one of Christ Community's clinics, okay? And so uh, as he's doing this, he's getting to know Rick Donlin, he's getting to see what they're doing, and he goes back to his buddy Grant Scarborough, who is a, another resident with him that was a couple of years behind him, and said, we need to do this together. Let's do something like this. 
They prayed about it. They had a uh, they had some connections in Augusta, Georgia, and so they moved to Augusta, Georgia. And what they did was uh, they job shared a hospitalist job. Each took half a salary. They alternated working two days at the hospital and three days at the clinic one week, and then the other one would swap and do do that the next week. And they did that for three years until they had enough of a patient base that one of them could go full-time. Now, that wasn't that long ago. That was 2007. And uh, two years ago, they moved into their second location, this beautiful old uh, home here that they've restored. It's called the Widow's Home. It's huge. Uh, They're doing about 20,000 patient visits a year. Uh, The Widow's Home is gorgeous. I've been in there. I mean, it's the nicest health center, primary care center I've ever been in my life. It's the only one I've ever been to where every exam room has a fireplace and a hardwood floor. (laughs) That's not an exaggeration, every single one of them. So, um, And so about a year or so ago, things were going really good at Christ Community Health Services in Augusta, and Grant Scarborough, Robert's partner, said, hey, look, um, there's some people down in Columbus, Georgia, have heard about what we're doing, and they've asked us if we could do it down in, in Columbus, Georgia. And so Christ Community in Augusta released Grant and some other staff to move down there, and they've started Mercy Med Clinic. Uh, they, bought a, they spent the first six months just building relationships in the community and responding to what the community wanted. It's a gospel-driven Christian clinic. They're going to see about 8,000 patient visits this year in an old bank building that they've really renovated, and it's beautiful, except that the triage area and the, you know, the, where you draw the blood and all that is in the vault. Okay, so like you got to go through the bars, and they, you know, they make a joke, like we're going to shut the bars if you scream when we poke you. So anyway, so here's, this is four generations, and I don't know if you, if you understand what some of the, what, what the deal is here, but, um, it started out with Art Jones getting roped into something because he was wise enough to understand that the poor were crying out to God and he was willing to take one step in response to that. And that one step was a sign and a wonder. And now Rick Donlin sees that and says, I can do that here. And he replicates, but it's completely, it looks very different. If you visit Lawndale, you visit Christ Community, they look very different because Art Jones and Rick Donlin are different people. Chicago and Memphis are different cities. And, it's, and, and so there's, they've helped each other. But then Rick's helped the group in Augusta, and the group in Augusta has helped the group in Columbus. Thirty years ago, this is what Christian health care in America looked like. There were four clinics that were committed to not just be Christian doctors caring for the poor, but to practice Christian medicine, to really look at these kingdom, to, to try to identify some of these kingdom principles and these kingdom methods and apply them in healthcare. Four. This is what it looks like today. There's a right around 300 nationwide. All 300 of those can trace themselves back to relationally, one of those early four clinics. Here's what I'm telling you. You're not going to have to reinvent the wheel. Most of you came to this particular workshop because you think God may be moving on you to do something in a pioneering way. And you're really searching for that. I'm telling you that none of the people that I showed you on this thing are people that you would have ever predicted would have ever been a pioneer. And yet God has been with them and been successful because they've been bold enough to take one step in obedience, in faith, beyond their ability, and there's been a community of people around them to stand there and say, we'll help you. They've responded to the community. Listen, God's going to call you to do something great in his name in health care. Not because you have this passion that needs to be fulfilled, but because there are poor people that are crying out to him, and he hears their cry, and he's calling you, just like he did Moses.
It's not about you. It's about God's heart for the poor. And I'm going to just tell you right now, there, I mean, there are things that I, I, I wish we could get into a little bit more. We don't have time, but um, there's a, there's a, there is a nationwide community that is committed to helping you. We need clinics. We need clinics in strategic areas. There's not a Christian clinic in St. Louis, Missouri. We need a Christian clinic that's large enough to leave a dent in St. Louis, Missouri. We need a Christian clinic in Baltimore. We need one in Miami. We need them in Texas. Texas is the most medically underserved state in the area of primary care in the country. Texas. The Bible Belt is the most medically underserved areas in the United States. There are 17,000 mission fields that are, that are sitting there waiting for Christians to respond and to take a step and to go and do something. We'll help you do it. We'll help you do it. I'm praying that in this room today, I've been praying for the last several weeks, that in this room today, that God will raise up just four, just four pioneers. People who sometime in the next four to six years will say, hey, I'm going to be willing to step and go into some place where nothing exists. I'm going to find a partner. I'm going to pray him into existence. And I'm going to believe that God is using me in response to the cry of the poor in that place. And I'm going to do it in the name and the character and, in the, and, in the, and, and, and motivated by the gospel and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. So, Father, I just, Lord, you've heard my prayer so many times, God, and I know that, Lord, mine are weak, oftentimes, Lord, misdirected, certainly, God, no more important than the thousands of cries that you hear every day for these very same people that I've been praying for. And I'm asking you in Jesus' name for your Holy Spirit to inspire us, God. Father, we refuse to be discouraged We refuse, Lord, to hide in the light. Lord, we are not going to be afraid of the dark. And I ask God for that spirit of courage and boldness, Father, to enter these servants of yours, God. And, Father, for you to use them in powerful ways, both in this nation and beyond. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.